Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, open Bibles, Matthew 1, page 849. If you don't know by now, it's page 849. We've been uh, looking at the first 17 verses of Matthew ever since uh, uh, the calendar changed to December, going through our favorite parts of the Bible. That, of course, is the genealogies. Um, and what we have seen is the story of Jesus through every page of Scripture. And we will do so uh, in conclusion this evening. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. We'll start in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob followed Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon and Christ, 14 generations. Go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we ask as always you would open our, our, our hearts and our mind, our eyes, our ears, our, our, our mouths, our hands, our feet. We would take your word, apply it to our lives, and be transformed. Lord, the world needs to see Christ, not just through history, but in our need right now. Would you be so kind as to do that for us? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think I've been married long enough to know that I think every grown male suffers from the same, um, same uh, issue. That is that we are unable to see what is directly in front of us. Have you noticed that problem? It isn't, isn't that we don't see everything else. It's, it's just that we don't see that one thing. Whether we're looking for butter in the refrigerator, you know, uh, we'll find everything else in the refrigerator, just won't find the butter. Some obscure craft to Hobby Lobby, right? We'll see all the other unnecessary junk that China sent us, but we can't find the one thing our wives want. Some specific earring in the earring case that we know our wife bought with our money. We, 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 can't, we can find all the other earrings and, and, and everything else, but we can't find that one specific one. We see everything else just not what is right in front of us. Again, it isn't that we can't see, but that we can't find what it is that we are looking for. We, we know that we're looking for it. We just can't find it. But of course, that's not just a problem with men. As I grow older, I, I, I see that this is a problem with mankind. We all are looking for the same thing. We all desire the same thing. We want peace. We want shalom. We want redemption. The problem is that we see everything else around us and thus missing the very thing that's been in front of us this entire thing. The one thing we're looking for, we so often miss. And that is the story that we see in, in this list of obscure names before us. Remember what it is we've seen. We began with the patriarchs, which then led to, to the uh, slavery and conquest and, and the judge and all that. And last week we saw the monarchy. And, and this week we, we, we're seeing the, the, the captivity of Israel. So the age of the kings of Judah has come to an end. And in roughly 586 B.C., Babylon lays siege of Jerusalem and later destroys the city and its temple. 
Jeconiah that we saw last week, mentioned here in, in verse 12, is, is the last of the Davidic kings of Judah right now. Yeah, I believe it's his uncle or someone, uh, Zedekiah, that sort of uh, becomes a, a puppet king un, under Babylon. But, but, but for the most part, Jeconiah is, is the last of the direct descendant of David to, to be a king. He had a very short reign, and he, like many of his fathers, were evil. He only uh, served as king for about three months, and during that three months, he, he, he partnered with the Babylonians to save himself and his family from suffering and death and everything else that came with the, the siege. And so he got out of Dodge while the rest of his people suffered. Well, around this time when Jeconiah was doing this, the prophet Jeremiah pronounced judgment on Jeconiah and the house of Jeconiah. And so we see in Jeremiah 22, uh, Jeremiah says, Write this uh, man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling against Judah. Now, on, on the surface, it sounds like Jeconiah will never have a child. He will, he will prove to be he and his wife infertile under the judgment of God. The problem is, is both Matthew 1.12 that we just read, and we could even add to that 1 Chronicles 3, shows not only did Jeconiah have a son, he had several children. So, so, so what is then is meant by this man shall be childless? Well, the answer is found in that God's judgment came down on Jeconiah and in that he would be the last one of his family upon the Davidic throne. Now think about what that means for a king. Well, one of the, what are the primary goals of every king is to secure his heir. He needs to have a son, preferably a grandson, alive and well, someone that he can hand the kingdom over to, someone he can mentor and disciple and train so, so, so that the kingdom will, will continue to do well long past his time. And, and, and every king throughout history has been concerned with this. This is why King Henry VIII married and divorced, we should add, uh, thus launching the uh, Protestantism in England, so many women, is because what he wanted was a male heir he could put on the throne. Now, he didn't get that male heir by the end of it, and, and so his daughter became queen. Now, this prophetic doom means that Israel, believing all the promises of God made to David, we touched on briefly last week, they therefore waited anxiously for the Davidic throne to be reinstalled. But how is that going to happen in captivity? And what we have in these verses is a story of captivity after captivity after captivity. One of the most significant names we see here is the grandson of Jeconiah, and that is Zerubbabel. Now, remember that Jeconiah and, and all of Israel, they, they go into Babylonian captivity. They are dispersed. Thus, thus the people of Israel are, are separated uh, throughout the Babylonian Empire. And uh, 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the people of, of Israel are encouraged by the new uh, powers to be, the Persians, the Medo-Persians, to uh, return home. And so a remnant of Jews did return to their homeland. And some of these early pioneers, we, we, we know their names quite well. Ezra and Nehemiah have books dedicated to their names. Or what about Joshua the high priest, Haggai, Zechariah? Again, many of these uh, names wrote uh, books, or at least have books in, in their names. But the primary political leader of this time, of this first remnant that returns to, to Judah, was Zerubbabel. You could probably tell by his name, it's a very Babylonian name. Babel there should sound like Babel, Babylon. 
It's a very Babylonian name, which makes sense considering his context. He, of course, is the grandson of the last Davidic king. Now, he, was, he did not become king of Judah at this time. He was more like a governor in the sense that he, he is a, uh, 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 he's a point of contact between the occupying powers, the Persians on the one hand, and the people of Israel on the other. But it is under his political leadership, not to mention the spiritual leadership of Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra, and others, that not only was the Jewish wall built, an important aspect of security, but the Jewish temple was rebuilt. And so through this event, the prophets uh, said from God that uh, this new temple brings with it messianic hopes. Remember, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. And then so, 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 so God tells them, prepare that, that the Messiah will come. The line of David will, will be remade. And so you can get in, in Haggai, for example, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel. Notice the significance here. Who is a descendant of David? Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. This is a cosmic language often associated with prophecy. To overthrow the, the throne of kingdoms like Babylon, like Persia, like the others. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like the signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, Zerubbabel will eventually die. And not much has changed. They've got the temple, they've got the wall, people still putting pieces back together, building houses and everything else. What we see here is this promise made to Zerubbabel as the living descendant of David is a reminder that God has not forsaken his people. God has not forsaken his covenant that he made with David. And although Zerubbabel is largely a forgotten figure, hero of the Old Testament, he's a significant figure in the history of Israel. So we can read in Zechariah chapter 4, it says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. You shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, the temple. His hand shall also complete, complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You see right there. You can despise the small things, like the building of the temple. But the day will come when God, through Zerubbabel, his line, I will do great and mighty things. Thus, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and others, there is this hope that the Messiah will come. And it is building with anticipation. The king is coming. The king is coming. If only we will wait for him. And so what you get in the rest of this genealogy is the son of Zerubbabel, followed by the, his son and his son and his son, all of these should be kings of Judah, but they're not. Rather, they are under captivity of foreign armies. In fact, if you were to do a study of these names, can I tell you something about these names? Outside of Matthew and Luke and maybe Chronicles, which was not even the Chronicles, they're nowhere in the Bible. They're nowhere to be found. If we were to limit our studies we've been doing to these figures from the Bible, you're not going to find anything about them. Can I tell you everything we know about each of these names? Abiad means my father is majesty. 
That name could come from the fact that Zerubbabel was almost crowned king, which would have meant the Persians would, would come in and destroy them. Eliakim means raised up by God. Azer means helper. Zadok means just or righteous. Akim means the Lord will establish. Eliad means God his praise. Eleazar means help of God. Of course, Aaron, the, the first high priest, had a son named Eleazar, the most famous by that name. Mathon means gift. It's related to the later name Matthias. Matthias will replace Judas. And Matthias means a gift of Yahweh. Jacob means heel catcher or supplanter. We could even uh, get from that deceiver. And you remember why that is, because the first Jacob, the patriarch, uh, was, was a deceiver. He, he had caught on the heel of his, his, his twin brother Esau. Now, Jacob is the grandfather of Jesus. And notice here, Jacob gives birth to Joseph. That story sound familiar? If we had time, we could develop a whole theme with Jacob, Joseph, and Jesus. But uh, we, we just don't have time for that. And then there is Joseph. We know a little bit about Joseph, don't we? Joseph is the unsung hero of Christmas we often forget about. He's a significant figure. Um, he, he's betrothed to, to a pregnant Mary, and he vows to protect her and honor her and in his commitment to marry her. He's obedient to God when visited by angels in various dreams. He's careful to, uh, to obey the Mosaic law, the story when Jesus was 12, being presented in the temple, uh, which, which would have marked the one year prior to Jesus being considered an adult. So you would have been adult at age 13, not age 30. I'll just throw that comment out there. And then finally, one of the things we need to note here is, is that uh, uh, Joseph probably dies at a fairly young age. Somewhere between Jesus being 12 and 30, beginning his ministry, Joseph just fades away from history. And given that Jesus seems to take responsibility for Mary, it's very likely, and I think most scholars agree, Joseph likely had died. But this is really all we know about the people in this genealogy. Don't you feel better? That's it. You can go home now. We're done. Yet, although we don't know much about them as individuals, the truth is there is much we know about them as a people. And it is a story of captivity. The period between Zerubbabel to Jesus is roughly 400 years. 14 generations, Matthew tells us there in verse 17. And this is a period, not of just of captivity, but of silence. No prophets, no kings, no voice from the Lord. But there is a lot of history that takes place in 400 years. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of turmoil, a lot of longing. So can I summarize to you 400 years of history in eight hours? Can I do that just real quick? You state workers are off for like at least another week. It ain't that big of a deal. I don't know how long you're off. The first thing that happens is the Persian Empire. We, of course, see this at the end of the Old Testament, right? This is where Cyrus uh, uh, lays the smack down against Babylon, lets the people go back. This is the, the period of Zerubbabel, Haggai. We, we, we've talked about them. You get the Persian Empire. You see rough dates. These are my dates. If, if you were looking up in a book, you'd probably get other books. I have my own purposes for, for these dates. After the Persians come, the Greeks. Uh, Alexander the Great really uh, begins his, his reign uh, and, and his conquest in 336 B.C., which is why I chose that date. He conquers much of the known world at the time, from Greece and Macedonia to the west. Of course, Alexander is a Macedonian. He's Greek, but he's really Macedonian. Uh, to Egypt to the south and as far east as the border of India. He never could quite get into India because they had elephants. So uh, Alexander the Great, not only did he conquer the area, but he did something that the other empires didn't do, is he brought with him not just an army, but a culture. 
And so everywhere he conquered, he Hellenized. That's the fancy way of saying he, he turned them all into Greeks. And this is why when you come to the New Testament, everyone is speaking Greek. It's why your New Testament was originally written in Greek. And this is significant because the Bible that Jesus and the apostles read from and preached from and referenced was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a very influential translation called the Septuagint. But Alexander the, the, the Great died in 326 B.C. without an heir. Thus his kingdom was divided into four parts. And if you know anything, that if you only get a part of a whole, you're going to fight for the rest of the whole, right? I mean, this is the way history works, right? So here's Alexander the Great. He's got this massive kingdom. He don't know what to do with it except die. So he dies. And then you got four guys, generals, and what do generals do? They fight. And so guess what they do? Like brothers, they fight. I want your piece of the pie. No, I want your piece of the pie. But, and so instead of eating the entire pie, they're all left with one-fourth of the pumpkin pie, and they really want the whole pie. So what you get throughout the, the Greek history of this time is battle after battle after battle. What is significant for, for Palestine is it's the center of conflict between two of these generals, uh, Ptolemy and Seleucus. Most, notice, most noteworthy, we should say, uh, of, of these battles was a leader, a Seleucid by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And unlike Alexander the Great, which did allow some religious liberty, he wasn't all rah, rah, go America sort of religious liberty, but he did allow some religious liberty. Antiochus Epiphanes did not allow religious liberty, especially in Judah. So much so that in 167 B.C., he overthrew the Jewish priesthood, like just got rid of it. He disbanded it, disbarred it, made it illegal. And in fact, he, after he did that, he desecrated the temple by placing an altar of Zeus in the heart of the temple and sacrificed a pig, the most unclean animal in Jewish religion, and declared himself to be divine. Now, I don't know about you, but that, them, them are fighting words, okay? Right? Now, what may be fascinating to you is that while he was still in Babylon, Daniel prophesied that this event would happen. And so you can see it here in Daniel 11, 30, 31. He does the same thing in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, but what is fascinating is, is to Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. Later, Jesus, when he speaks of the end times, he uses that passage from Daniel, that historical event of the Greeks, and he says, look, it's going to happen again. So what you have in Daniel is an immediate fulfillment and then a final fulfillment. And Jesus is telling us about the final fulfillment. He mentions Daniel by name, that, that the temple will be desecrated. Now, whether or not that is what happened in AD 70 when the Romans conquered Israel or Jerusalem, or if it's going to happen in the future. Uh, you can ask our end time buffs all you want to about what they think. They'll give you an answer. And I, I could give you about four other answers. I don't know. But nevertheless, you can see how, how turbulent these times are. You have a foreign power who are already ruling over you, taking your wealth, taking your resources, taking your people, and then completely trying to take away your identity. An identity has been around at least since Abraham. This leads to the third significant historical event at this time. That is the Maccabean revolts. Now you see the dates there culminating in 63 BC. The desecration of the temple, as I said, are fighting words. So what you get is a group of people who have had enough of the Greeks. Led by a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, through guerrilla warfare, they managed to push the Greeks out of Jerusalem. And through their work and warfare, worship was reformed, the priests were reestablished, and the temple was sanctified. The, Macedonia, or the Maccabean revolt was violent, and it was bloody. 
One significant event, actually two that were closely associated, came in 165 BC at Emmaus and Beth Zur. These will all be on your test at the end. It was at this, these, after these battles, they were finally to, to cleanse and rededicate the temple. And it took three years of violence and warfare to push the Greeks out. The celebration after this victory lasted eight days and became an annual Jewish holiday known as the Feast of Dedication. It's in, it's in the New Testament. Jesus goes to celebrate the Feast of, of Dedication, John chapter 10, verse 22. By the way, we don't call it that anymore, at least not in America. You know what we call it? Hanukkah. Every December, the Jews celebrate, not a man down a chimney, but liberation from their enemies. The story of this revolt is told in the Apocrypha. If you don't know what the Apocrypha is, uh, if you ever have a Catholic Bible, um, um, it's a little longer. It's because there's an additional 14 books. Um, they call it the Old Testament. We call it the Apocrypha. And two of those is First and Second Maccabees, which tells the story. But we do not believe the Apocrypha is, is inspired. Later, in the time of Jesus, under the Roman rule, which is uh, the fourth significant event, under Roman rule, there were a group of people by the name of Zealots who were inspired by the Maccabeans. They believed that they could, through guerrilla warfare, push the Romans out, uh, but, it, but it required violence. Well, that leads to the Roman period. Roman general Pompey uh, conquered Israel, bringing the Roman Republic, later the Roman Empire, over the Jewish people. They were once again under the authority of a pagan nation. So the, the age of the Maccabeans was short-lived. And from the Roman rule came the Herodian dynasty, so Herod the Great and Herod Antip Antipas and all that sort of stuff. And all Herod is is a governor, like Pilate, except he gave himself the name of a king. Why? Because Israel is looking for a king. Israel is longing for a king. Not only do you have the promises made to David, but then you've got added promises made to Zerubbabel. And in comes this guy named Herod, who, who is, is not even fully Jewish. And what is he claiming? He is claiming, I am the king of Israel. But what does Herod bring? He brings more violence, more taxation, and, and, and more suffering. And then you can add other governors like Pilate, all of whom have a tendency to antagonize the Jews, reminding them that they are under captivity. They are under foreign rule. And so in response to the Romans, in response to the Greeks, you get a violence. But in response to the Romans, you get a variety of people who are thinking, if only we go in this direction, then our Savior will come. If only we try this, then hope will come. So you get people like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Ever heard of them? What do they believe? Strict adherence to the law. If we obey the law, God will love us. God will hear us. God will redeem us. You get people like the Herodians. They sound familiar. They show up in the Gospels. What is it they are saying? If only we play along. If only we get along with everyone. If, I mean, the Romans are, are, are like keeping us safe. Sure, they're killing our, our families and friends, but they're keeping us safe. One would be better off siding with the Romans. There's a group called the Essenes. They don't show up by name in the Gospels, but they're still significant. They are likely the ones involved with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most significant archaeological find of the 20th century. And what do they do? They're the monks of the day. They go out into the desert near the Dead Sea in a community called Qumran, and they spend all their days with scroll and pen in hand writing Scripture and writing other documents that we have since reserved. They think, no, what we need to do is we need to isolate ourselves from Romans, isolate ourselves from apostate Israel, and then God will redeem us. We are the ones liberated here. There's a fourth group with highlighting here. That is the zealots. We've already mentioned them. 
The Zealots believe that if, if only they could fight the way the Maccabeans did. They could push the Romans back. And then Israel will be free. And then the king will rise. In fact, they're looking for a king. They believe that God will raise a king like he did Judas Maccabeus. God will raise a king of the line of David. And he will be a man of war. He will be a great military leader. And he will push the Romans out. And we will be free. Messiah will reign. You see, what they all wanted was the same thing. Liberty. Shalom. Messiah, redemption. Yet no matter how stringent the Pharisees were, no matter how violent the the, the Zealots were, no matter how connected the Herodians were, no matter how isolated the Essenes were, Rome still ruled and Messiah seemed to have never have come. And so we get this, this, this in verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And notice within that single sentence what all is involved. Slavery in Egypt. Draconian leadership under the monarchs. Captivity following Zerubbabel. What a sad story this is. And so you can see it building and building and building, can't you? Everyone is looking for the same thing. But they can't find it. They see the law. They see violence. They see isolation. They see everything else. But they don't see Messiah. Because you'll notice there in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Messiah. Jesus Christ took this way, went this way. The mother Mary was betrothed to a redneck named Joseph. You see, it's right under their eyes. It's right under Herod's eyes. It's right under the Pharisees' eyes. It's right under the Zealots' eyes. It's under everyone's eyes. But they miss the Messiah. They miss the point. And what is it we find there in verse 23? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. and They shall call his name God. It's amazing. They see everything. But they don't see what it is that God has sent to them. I couldn't help but think. Has much really changed over the years? Think about it. Terms like Pharisees and Sadducees is a historical term. We don't have those today, do we? Do we have people who believe that strict adherence to a law, whatever that law might be, will bring happiness and peace? Maybe it's on the religious side where, where legalism may dominate. Maybe that's a, the, the context of what you grew up with. Or it's on a more secular side that if you ain't woke enough, then, then, then you ain't welcome here. Where we increasingly become a shame and honor sort of society. And if you bring shame, you'll always be shameful. How many of us are looking for religious legalism to save us? Sure, we don't have the Herodians now. But do we not have plenty of people who believe the state will save us? Does anyone remember the year 2020? If only the right guy could get in there. If only the right policies can be fixed. If only we get the right number of judges in there. If only we can fix the mistakes of the past. If only we can do this or that. Then we'll have peace. Then we'll have shalom. Then we'll have liberty. And it never comes. One election bleeds into another. The same hopes are still remain. What about the Essenes? Sure, they're significant in terms of historical understanding of the past. 
Do we not have plenty of people who believe isolation will save us? If only we can pull away. If only we can create our own little society. If only we can just be different. If only we, we could just ignore everything else. Of course. Not only do we want to be isolated, but we want to push people away. You're not one of us. You're not welcome here. Good luck with that. What about the zealots? Sure, they're, they're again, significant in terms of understanding the New Testament. They may have explained the story of, of, of Barabbas, the revolutionary, and then the two thieves that Jesus is, is nailed to. They could have very possibly been zealots. We talked about that before. I don't know about you, but it seems we have plenty of people right now turning to the violence. I hope that it will save us. If only we can get rid of the races. If only we can get rid of, of that political party. If only we could burn cities down. If only, if only I get rid of this group, target these people, demonize them, then peace will come. Then salvation will come. You know what I've noticed? No one ever dares to look in the manger. He's right there in front of us. Right there before us. But we don't see him. Because God doesn't operate by human perspective. Salvation won't come by violence, but by a Savior who suffers under it. Salvation won't come by the law, but by a Savior who fulfills it. Salvation won't come by isolation, but a Savior who brings us all together. Salvation won't come through a king or through a state or a kingdom, but to the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's right there. Can't you see him? But don't just leave him there in the manger. He brings with him liberation. He brings with him peace. He brings with him shalom. He brings with him redemption. Not because he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Because he's nailed to a cross. And there upon a cross, all of man's expectations, all of man's hopes and dreams are laid upon him. All of their sins, all of their burdens, all their failures, all their brokenness, all the shame are laid upon him. And three days later, he's risen from the dead. You see, the point of the genealogy is not that we would look back the way things used to be. But in the genealogy, we would look forward the way God makes them anew. Yes, the genealogy of Jesus is full of a lot of broken, messed up people who failed and failed and gave birth to more failures. But when Christ came, born of two broken people, Living in a broken society, everything changed. With him comes hope. With him comes peace. With him comes redemption. If only we wouldn't miss him who is right before us. You see, the message of the, of the Old Testament is simple. The king is coming. He is coming. What is the message of the New Testament? He has come. He will come again. doesn't matter how bad the year was or how hopeful you may think next year will be. He has come. He will come again. Let's pray.